0: Good evening, everybody. Merry Christmas Eve. Appreciate you spending the evening with us. If you're here today for the first time, first time in a long time, first time in person, whatever it is, uh, tonight we are actually finishing up a brief series that we've been in called The Meaning of Christmas. Um, So I'm going to be in Luke's Gospel account, chapter... Two verses 8 through 14. Uh, I don't know how to preach on any other text in the Bible than this one. It just wouldn't feel right. It wouldn't feel like Christmas Eve if I didn't do it, so let me read it to you. It says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy... That will be for all the people. Today, a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. Still can't read that without smiling. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. This is God's Word. This is also the eighth time that I'm preaching on this passage as a pastor. And uh, sometimes it's the most familiar texts that that are the hardest ones to get into, Uh, you know, to try to see them with a fresh set of eyes. When I was putting this teaching together, um, something stood out to me that's never really struck me about this passage before. It's the fact that we are told that when this angel and eventually that multitude of angels appeared, we're specifically told in this story that the shepherds were so terrified that they needed to be commanded to stop being afraid. And the question I put before you tonight is very simply, why is that? Uh, Now, on the one hand, you know, I I think it's safe to say that it's probably a pretty unnerving experience to be minding your own business as a shepherd in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and be interrupted by an angelic messenger in the Bethlehem night sky. I'm sure that that would throw anybody off if it happened to them. However, something far deeper is being communicated to us here uh, in the picture that Luke's gospel account is painting for us. And Uh, what's being communicated to us specifically in Luke 2, 8 through 14 in the lives of these shepherds is that fear has a tight grip on the human heart. Uh, It's a fear that actually becomes greater the closer we get to the presence and the glory and the light of God. And it's a fear that finds its origin in the beginning, um, all the way in the beginning Uh, Of the Bible, uh, which in just the first three chapters tells us something profound about ourselves. All the way back in the book of Genesis, we're told that when Adam and Eve, that first couple were created, that they experienced uh, something that we've actually never experienced, and we never will on this side of eternity, which is a perfect relationship with God. Scripture says that they would walk with God in the cool of the day, but when they decided Uh, To try to define right and wrong for themselves, to be their own masters, their own lords, their own rulers, all of that changed. And we're told that from the moment that sin entered the world, from that moment on, nothing would ever be the way that it used to be. Uh, Because in Genesis 3, we're told that, that after sin entered the world and the couple heard the sound of God approaching, they did something that they had never done before, which is run from God. And they hid themselves, and they sewed fig leaves together to try to hide themselves and cover up for this thing that they'd never felt before uh, called shame. And the reason that they did that, uh, Adam tells us very explicitly in Genesis chapter 3, it's because they were afraid. And what the Bible's telling us there is that from the moment that sin entered the world, the human condition would be a condition in which we would run from God and look to something other than God to try to cover us and make us feel safe, driven by this fear that there's a problem deep inside of us for which we have no solution. So literally just yesterday, I I, um, finished reading a book called... It's written by Tim Keller, who I quote all the time. It's called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? And in that book, the uh, author goes into detail, kind of drawing out this deep sense of nakedness and shame and fear that that couple felt in Genesis chapter 3. But what I thought was really interesting is he talks about how that same sense still manifests itself uh, in our hearts today. I want to read to you. what he said. It's a longer quote. That's the biggest problem when I read Tim Keller. I just wind up highlighting entire pages of text. It's almost like you should just highlight the stuff you don't like. Let me read this to you. He said, nakedness is a deep sense that there's something wrong with me, something imperfect about me. There's something inadequate about me. I'm not what I ought to be. That's the reason we cannot bear to let somebody else see us as we really are. We spend all our lives finding ways to cover up that deep, radical sense of inadequacy. And then he started at he, he, this is the way that he writes, this is the way that he speaks. If you've ever listened to him, he started asking a number of pointed questions that to me, if you if want to be honest with yourself, it just nails you to the wall. He says, why do so many people work themselves to death to be successful? Why do some people have no boundaries or not able to say no to anyone? Why do others stay unattached, not allowing any real friendships or committed romantic relationships to develop? Why are some people rescuers who are always trying to save people in crisis? Why do some live in perpetual victim mode, spending all their time blaming others for harming them? Why do others engage in abusive behavior, living a life based on the principle, do unto others before they get a chance to do unto you? Why do so many love to spread slander and gossip about others? Why these things? These are fig leaves. Your perfectionism is a fig leaf. I hated that sentence. I'm such a perfection perfectionist in the house tonight. I hated that sentence, but I had to highlight it. He said your perfectionism is a fig leaf. Your work is a fig leaf. Your holding on to your youth is a fig leaf. Your desperate need for approval is a fig leaf. These are desperate efforts to deal with the sense of unacceptability, of unlovability that we all have, but fig leaves don't work. Imagine for a moment trying to make do with an actual garment of fig leaves for clothing. Such a garment would be always falling apart, and so it does. <clears throat> if you attend this church regularly, you probably heard me pull out quotes from celebrities or books or songs that speak to this idea because when you start to listen for it, you find it's, it's you, you hear it and you see it everywhere you look, even in a culture as secular as, as ours has become. I'm not going to read the exact quotes to you, but if you've been here long enough, you've probably heard me read this one before. In a 91 interview with Vanity Fair, Madonna talked about how she has an iron will. Uh, I used this quote a couple of years ago, and somebody's teenage daughter said, who's Madonna? And that's how I knew. That's how I knew. I'm not a young guy anymore. thought I was, but I wasn't. Anyway, Madonna is this prehistoric figure. If you've never heard of her before, Um, She existed in the ancient world, and she, she talked about how she has this iron will, and all of her will, this is exactly what she said. She said, all of her will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. She says, I've always struggled with that fear, and she goes on and says, no matter how much she achieves, it never seems to go away. In uh, 99, in a Rolling Stone magazine interview, Brad Pitt said the same thing in slightly different words. At that point in his life, Fight Club had come out, so he was about, he was on top. He was about as big as he was ever gonna be, about as big as you could be, only to come to this deep realization. He talks about it in the interview. He says, once you get everything, this is is exactly what he said, then you're just left with yourself. And he, he actually tells the interview, he says, I hate to be the one to say it. I know I'm the guy that has everything, but he says, once you get it, it doesn't help you go to bed any easier. You don't wake up any better because of it. Uh, this week I was riding into Baltimore in my brother's pickup truck, and he was listening to a, a song called Didn't Fix Me by the band Dawes. Um, had he been riding in my Jeep Wrangler, we'd have been listening to Christian radio, but because I was riding with him, just kidding. Sorry, Jeff. Uh, Gotcha. (laughs) No, we were listening to this song. It's called Didn't Fix Me by Dawes. First time I heard it, I fell in love with the song. The band Dawes, if you've ever heard of them, even if you don't like the sound, uh, they just write brilliant songs. And I love that song the first time I heard it because every verse is about something that the singer looked to to ease the pain of the human existence. Every verse. In verse 1, he talks about uh, how he went to this self-help guru to find some techniques to employ to improve the quality of his life. Uh, In verse 2, he says that he started volunteering at the Sacred Heart, you know, doing good deeds in the community. Then he talks about these, uh, these professional accolades that he'd won as an artist and all of the respect that that garnered for him. And then he talks about getting lost in, in the world of books and, uh, and, and in these great stories and in the world of art. And he talks about the romantic love that he'd given and received from different people throughout his life. And in every one of the verses, he talks about how every one of those things was good, And every one of those things did momentarily make him feel a little bit better, but he repeats it. It's almost like a haunting refrain after every verse he repeats the phrase. He says, but it didn't fix me like I thought it would. And what struck me the first time I heard that song is that group and that, that songwriter, they're not Christians. They're not writing from a biblical worldview. They don't have a theological agenda they're trying to push on people. And I heard that and I thought, why is it that that song rings so true with so many people? Where does that knowledge, that, that deep sense that we even need to be fixed, where does that come from? How do you account for that? And what I, what I want to put before you is that what that songwriter is telling us What Brad Pitt's telling us in 99, what Madonna was telling us in 91, what Tim Keller's telling us in the book that I quoted earlier is the same thing that the Bible has been trying to tell us in literally the very first story in the Bible. It's that we all move through life with this deep, painful awareness that there is something wrong with us. And no fig leaves that we try to sew together can alleviate that condition. Merry Christmas, everyone. Now, I say all this to say... uh, You have to understand this if what this angel told these shepherds is going to mean anything to us. So so allow that to set the stage for this because when that angel spoke to those shepherds and said the words, fear not for behold, I bring you good news, here's what that means. It means the meaning of Christmas Is it the fear that has had a hold on all of of humanity since that fateful day in Genesis chapter 3, that fear that causes you and I to feel like we have to hide who we really are? Misrepresent who we really are. That fear that causes us to feel like we need to achieve something or we need to earn something or we need to justify ourselves or we need to cover ourselves in some way, shape, or form. The meaning of Christmas is that that fear can be done away with and replaced with a deep and abiding sense of joy and peace. And I don't know anybody that couldn't use a little bit more of that in their life, but here's the key. According to that angel, the only way that that can happen is if you and I behold, to quote the King James Version, meaning if we understand and we internalize and we build our lives on this message that the angel gave those shepherds 2,000 years ago, which is what we refer to as the message of Christmas. So here's the million-dollar question. What is the message of Christmas that we need so desperately to behold? And that's the question I wanna answer in the short amount of time that we have together this Christmas Eve. So we're gonna move through what that angel said, and let me just pull three things out for us. First off, I wanna look at what this message is telling us about who Jesus came to be. Secondly, what Jesus came to do. And then thirdly and lastly, who he came to do all of this for. So first off, just look with me and what Christmas is saying uh, about who Jesus came to be, it's recorded for us in Luke 2 verse 11. It says, "Today a savior who is Messiah, the Lord, was born for you in the city of David." That statement right there actually tells us three things about Jesus, that we, we need to understand all three of them to understand who He really is. First off, you notice the angel describes Jesus as a savior. Uh, What that means fundamentally is that Jesus came down here primarily as a rescuer or a deliverer. Now that news, as good as it is, that would not have been that surprising to the shepherds because if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, God had a history of raising up men and women uh, as a kind of savior to provide a kind of deliverance for his people. From the story of Joseph all the way to Esther, that's just how God did things. So that's not shocking in and of itself. But secondly... The angel described Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, That's a, a word that can also be translated Christ from the Greek Christos, which is actually a title. What it literally translates to is anointed one or chosen one. What that means, that's the angel's way of saying that this particular Savior whose birth they were announcing would be unlike any Savior that came before him. And in what the angel said next, the shepherds understood why. Because according to this angel, this child was not just sent by the Lord. The child that was drawing, drawing breath in the midnight Bethlehem air actually was the Lord. So I just ask you to consider this. This is something, what this angel is saying to these shepherds, this is something that on the one hand, no one in the history of God's people would dare to dream They considered it heresy that a human could be God. At the same time, this is also something that no other founder of any other major belief system has ever dared to claim. What we're being told here is that Jesus did not come down here to help us find God, but that he is God and he has come all this way to find us. That makes all the difference in the world. And to explain what I mean, let me tell you a story. If you were here um, in week one of this series, I actually... um, I've read this story then, but I figured it's probably some, somebody's first time here, so I wanted to reuse it. Uh, back in the late 1730s, a small group of people got together seeking an, an encounter with God, you could call it. They had an understanding uh, intellectually about who God was. They wanted to know if there was something more to a relationship with with God than that. If the intellectual could come experiential, maybe that's where some of us are this evening. Anyway, the only reason that we even know about this particular small group is because two of the people in it were brothers that were named John and Charles Wesley. They went on to found what has since gone on to be known as the Methodist movement. It was a movement in which hundreds of thousands of people on either side of the Atlantic gave their lives to Jesus. It was at this particular meeting that they had their lives changed, which led to that movement. So one of the men in that group, whose name was William Holland, got his hands on Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. And at the beginning of Luther's commentary, he attempts to summarize the entire message of Galatians, which is a message that Christians sometimes refer to as the gospel. Now, in my experience as a pastor, that word gospel gets thrown around so often that it tends to lose its meaning, and and people don't even really, um, even people that have been in church forever don't really think about what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel. So if, if you had to succinctly define the gospel, as simply as I can put it, the gospel is this idea that Jesus has come to provide a salvation that need only be received rather than achieved. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's not advice about what you should do with your life. It's news about what Jesus has done with his, that he has come to provide a salvation that needs simply be received rather than achieved. Now, regardless of whether or not you you believe that or even agree with that, I I just want to offer to you that message is what makes Christianity unique. Within every other major belief system, when you zoom out far enough, a distinct pattern can be noted in all of them. I'm talking Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, all of them. The pattern, when you zoom out far enough, is morality leads to salvation. Or stated differently, works leads to reward. So for instance, Buddhism teaches you to walk the eightfold path. Judaism teaches you to uh, obey the Ten Commandments. Islam teaches you to conduct your life according to the five pillars. Hinduism tells you to navigate the karmic cycle of reincarnation as a moral person, you know, willing to uh, endure the suffering in your present life that you must have done something to earn in a past life. And according to all of those belief systems, if you do that well then you get salvation. This is where Christianity completely breaks with every other major belief system because Christianity offers us not a different version of that. It does something far more revolutionary. Christianity comes along and it completely reverses the order of that altogether. Christianity actually teaches that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for you and I to be made right with God, everything necessary to alleviate us from this horrible condition that I described on the front end of our time together, and he now offers us salvation as a gift. And according to the way of life known as Christianity, when you and I finally accept that we cannot earn our salvation, which is really just a self-salvation project through which we try to maintain control of our own lives. Christianity as a way of life teaches that when we accept that we cannot earn our salvation, but we put our trust in Jesus to do it for us, in that moment, a human heart begins to change in a deep, meaningful, fundamental, and lasting way. So much more could be said about that, but the point is, Luther summarizes all of this at the beginning of his commentary. So William Holland from that small group, he got his hands on that, and he just wanted to see what would happen if he and his friend Charles Wesley read it to each other. And we know exactly what happened because he recorded it for us in his journal, which has survived now some 300 years. This is exactly what happened to William Holland the night he understood the message of the gospel. He said, Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud And there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. Listen to this. I love this. He said, my great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. And when I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. The only reason I I read that quote to you is because that's the language of someone who understands who Jesus came here to be. Not some prophet come to tell us what we need to do, but a Savior come to do what we could not. That's who Jesus came to be. Secondly, I said I wanted to talk about what this is telling us about what Jesus came to do. And this is actually where the text gets a little bit more surprising for me Because the angel gave those shepherds a sign that would help them identify Jesus. We read about it in the the next verse, verse 12. It says, this will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. So just consider this. These shepherds have just been told that God has entered human history in order to save it. And the angels chase that news by saying the sign that would enable them to identify that the child they had found was the child that just entered the world to save the world, the sign is that this child will be lying in a feeding trough. And like everything else I read in this book, first question that comes to my mind when I consider that is why. Why is the specific sign that this child will be in a feed trough in a no-name backwoods town called Bethlehem? Here's why. Just follow me here. The word Bethlehem The name of the town Jesus was born into literally means the house of bread. And the feeding trough, like the one Jesus was laid in, was a device that was used to satisfy the hunger and the thirst of animals in his day. The reason that this was the sign associated with the birth of Jesus that would allow the first people to see him, to identify him, what that's meant to do is to teach us something about what Jesus has entered into this world to do, which is to satisfy the deep hunger and thirst of all people. I'm gonna read a quote to you from C.S. Lewis, who I quote often. He said, most people, if they've really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, But they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, first think of some foreign country, first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. Here's how he ends the quote, and I love this phrasing. I'm going to return to this in a minute. He says, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, our longing to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fantasy but the truest index of our real situation. All he's saying there is that if up to this point in your life you find yourself perpetually dissatisfied with what this world offers you, it's not because there's something wrong with you, it's because there's something right with you. I I don't have any idea where everyone who listens to this message is coming from, but I, I do know that despite whatever we might disagree about or what might separate us or divide us or all of that, that all of us, every single person who listens to this message has at least this one thing in common. It's that we were born with desires that nothing in this life can satisfy. Lewis calls it this lifelong nostalgia that we have. What, What that means, what he's saying, is that when you and I look out into this life and we see and experience things like death and suffering and loss and pain and injustice, there's a part of every human heart that senses that we were made for a reality in which those things don't exist. That's why those things grieve us the way that they do. That's why there's such a deep sense when we experience those things, the way that I'm sure some of us have in profound, life-altering ways. There's something in us that says this is not the way things are meant to be. When he talks about this, this desire we have to be reunited with something we feel cut off from, to be on the inside of a door we've always seen from the outside. He's saying that in every human heart, there is a deep sense that we were made for a relationship with God. And the point of his quote is simply to say that, that even the best things this life has to offer cannot satisfy those desires that might distract us from those desires for a time. They might help us stop thinking about them for a time. They might numb us for a time, but they cannot satisfy the deep desires of the human heart. And Of course, what we all do on autopilot is we believe one of the most fundamental, effortless lies for the human heart to believe, which is, and it sounds crazy when you say it out loud, but this is how we all go through life. We believe this idea that maybe if I could just get more of what has never satisfied me, maybe then, maybe next time, I'll be satisfied. And it's that lie that keeps so many of us living on this hamster wheel kind of life that maybe somebody really relates to in a personal way this evening where we're always running, but we're, we're never any closer to what we wanted. We're exhausted and we're driven by this deep hunger and this deep thirst that never seems to go away. I say this to say Jesus was laid in a feeding trough the moment he was born to show you and I some 2,000 years later that he came to be the answer to that problem. About three decades after his birth, when people looked at Jesus and they heard what he had to say and the way that he said it and and they saw the things that he did, they knew that this, this was not just another rabbi. And they started asking what may very well be the most important question any of us will ever ask, which is, who is Jesus? Who is this man? And Jesus answered that question in a very unique way that pointed back to the sign of his birth. It's recorded for us in John chapter six, verse 35. It says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. What Jesus is saying there is something that no one other than God could claim because he's saying not just that he knows what could satisfy you or even has what could satisfy you. What Jesus explicitly said there is that he came to be the end to your search for satisfaction himself. So back to the question that I asked. Why was Jesus born in a house, in a town known as the house of bread? It's because he was the bread of life come to be broken so that broken people could be made whole in him. And the reason he was laid in a feeding trough as the sign of his birth is because he came to satisfy the hunger and the thirst of our souls. Lewis is right. And the Bible says we actually know that he's right, whether or not we want to admit it or not, that there is a sense somewhere buried in the deepest recesses of the human heart, we have a lifelong nostalgia that tells us we were made for a personal, life-giving relationship with our creator that we might know and experience the love and the joy and the peace and the hope that our souls were made to run on. And Jesus Christ has come to satisfy that desire in a way that no one and nothing else can. That's what he came to do. But before we're done tonight, the final thing that I wanna talk about is who Jesus came to do this for. And here is where more that I've studied this story throughout the years, here's where this story actually surprises me the most. Let me just zoom out here and set the stage for us. I didn't read these verses, but in the beginning of Luke chapter 2, when he's sort of painting the scene for us, we're told that Caesar sent out a decree that forced everybody in this region to get registered in their hometown. So you just follow the thread here. Because Mary was engaged to Joseph... She had to go with him to his hometown, which is Bethlehem. Because Mary was extremely pregnant when they were traveling, they got to Bethlehem behind everybody else. Because they got to Bethlehem behind everybody else, there was no room for them in the inn. And because there was no room for them in the inn, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as his grand entrance into humanity, had to be born outside, exposed to the elements Now, you read this story through that lens, and I think if you're willing to be honest, that sounds like a plan that was poorly executed because it was thrown together at the last minute as though God forgot that he was supposed to come down here 2,000 years ago. But as is so often the case with God, even though I'm sure nobody could see it at the time, the truth is every detail of what I just described to you had God's fingerprints all over it. It was specifically orchestrated and engineered for one very simple, but so it's, it's, a, it's a reason that's so profound to me. The reason God did this, the way that he did it, is so that those shepherds that heard this message from the angel could actually get to Jesus. They could actually have access to Jesus. If a single detail of this story had been changed or altered in any way, Those shepherds could have heard that God came down here, but they could never have gotten to him. And the fact that God did all of this for the sake of those shepherds only becomes more, it should only become more meaningful to us when we understand the place that shepherds held in society in Jesus' day. First off, professionally, nobody dreamed of being a shepherd when they grew up. If you were a shepherd, it's because your plans for your life fell apart Socially, shepherds were seen as outcasts. Their job kept them moving around too much to form any deep and meaningful relationships, and so everywhere they went, they were seen as outsiders. They were viewed um, through the lens of suspicion to the point that their testimonies were not even admissible in court. In Jesus' day, people just assumed shepherds were liars, and even more than that, morally, they were seen as ceremonially unclean as a group of people, as a profession, because their jobs kept them from being able to observe the religious laws of their day. And so if you wanted to... Th- and I'll put it this way. In Jesus' day, if you thought about somebody who was as far from God as you could be, a shepherd came to mind. Somebody whose sins were perpetually held against them. Somebody that God would never appear to. God would never grace with his presence. A shepherd was who you thought of. Now what does any of that have to do with us? Here's where this gets so meaningful because here's what it means. It means... If you know what it's like to wake up one day and feel like your life has not gone the way that you wanted it to, the way that you swore it was supposed to, I'm just telling you, you know exactly what it's like to be a shepherd. They felt like that every day of their lives. Every day they woke up and had to be a shepherd for one more day, that's the first thought in their mind. My life didn't go the way I hoped it would. If, if you know what it's like to feel like you're on the outside, like people have made up their mind about you before even bothering to get to know you, like you're surrounded by people, but ultimately there's a certain irreducible solitude to your life, you know what it's like to be a shepherd. They knew that feeling better than anybody. And if you've ever known what it's like to try to move through life carrying this crippling burden of wondering whether or not God could forgive somebody like you for the things that you've done, or God loves somebody like you, or God would even have room in his family for somebody like you, I'm just telling you, you are a shepherd, You're a modern-day shepherd. But the good news of Christmas is that if any of that describes any of you, the meaning of Christmas, the message of Christmas, is that you're exactly who Jesus came down here for. And the fact that these shepherds were the first ones to hear about this news, to get to Jesus, and to have their lives transformed by him, as the rest of Luke chapter 2 tells us, what that's meant to show us is the only thing. This is so unique to Christianity. The only thing that, that having a life-changing encounter with Jesus requires is that you come to Jesus exactly the way those shepherds did. And they came to Jesus with urgency, with humility, and, and simply with a desire to worship him. That's all it takes Having, a, having your life changed by Jesus is simply about coming to Jesus, first off, with urgency, with a willingness to leave behind everything that you used to know, everything that would keep you from knowing him, because you know that he's better. That's how those shepherds approach Jesus. It's about coming to Jesus with a posture of humility that knows, God, I don't have anything to offer you but a broken reputation and a bad name. You don't stand to benefit from me in any way. I stand to benefit from you. You don't need me. I need you. That's how those shepherds approached Jesus. But more than anything, it's about coming to Jesus simply with a desire to worship. When those shepherds were told that it was, it was a newborn baby drawing breath in that midnight sky that, that somehow housed the being of God, those shepherds knew a newborn wasn't going to be able to do anything for them or benefit them in any practical way. That's not why they left their old lives behind. They simply wanted to stand in the presence of God and worship. And that's all that Jesus requires. That's, that's why it, I've heard it said, and I completely agree, that when it comes to Jesus, all you need is your need. All you need is nothing. Nothing. And sometimes nothing is the hardest thing for these prideful human hearts of ours to come up with. But when you understand this story, I just, we're almost done. I'll just bottom line all this to say this. There's no other founder of any other major belief system like this. There's, there's no God in any other religion like this. You can dismiss this story as, as unbelievable. Unbelievable. You can dismiss this story as as childish. You can dismiss it as as foolish or whatever term you would throw in there. But I'll just tell you that if you don't find yourself at least desiring that this story is true, I don't think you've heard it yet. I don't think you've understood it yet, and I hope you keep leaning in until you do. So with that, we've arrived at the end of our time together. I'm going to call the worship team up, and I just want to end with a story. About eight years ago, I was invited to a conference where I had the privilege of of hearing a gentleman named Bobby Smith speak. He was a retired Louisiana state trooper who had been shot in the face during a routine traffic stop. He was rendered totally blind and had to leave his life in law enforcement behind. Uh, since leaving it behind, he, he went on to get his Ph.D. He wrote several books. He was a highly sought-after speaker, and he's no longer with us, and so I consider myself very blessed for having the opportunity to hear from him. When I did, he was telling us the story of his life, and he said that years after he left law enforcement behind, uh, he lost his daughter in a tragic car accident. And he said that as he stood by the hospital bed... Weeping over the loss of his daughter, the only thing that he could think about is how much he wished he had spent more time with her. And so from that moment on, he decided he would not make that same mistake with his son. So from then on out, he dedicated himself to being at every single one of his son's soccer games. And he would sit in the bleachers, and when his son would run in front of the bleachers, he would yell to him and he would yell back to his son. So finally, after several games, a woman approached Bobby and she asked him if he was the boy's father. And he said he was. And she mustered up the courage to ask if he could see at all or if he was totally blind. And he said he was completely blind, completely in the dark. And it's what he said next that has stuck with me for these past eight years. He said it didn't matter to him that he was blind because he didn't show up to see his son. He showed up so that his son could see him. And I'll tell you that when you understand that father's heart, you're pretty close to understanding the meaning of Christmas. Uh, Let me tell you something that I hope you already know, but if this is the first time you're hearing it, it's my honor to tell you, Jesus Christ did not enter into this world to see you. He had a better view of you from where he was. He entered into this world so that you could see him. And so that in seeing him, you could know, you could know, even when your life circumstances might cause you to doubt it, Jesus entered into this world so that in seeing him, you could know that there's a God who cares enough about you to get involved. There's a God who loves you enough to take on every ounce of the pain of this sometimes horrible human existence. And above all else, there's a God who's powerful enough to provide a salvation for you that you could have never provided for yourself. If you ask me, that's a God that's worth getting to know. And this Christmas, specifically, I hope you do. Because knowing him and knowing him more is the key to walking away from fear and into the peace and joy that you and I have been looking for all of our lives. That is is the meaning of Christmas. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that you loved us enough to come down here. I'm sure that there's people on the other side of this teaching right now that have a lot of, a lot of experiences in their life, in their past, and their present, that have them wondering where you are or what you're doing or what you're up to or why you would let them experience the things they're experiencing, God. We might never find the answer to that question in this life, but Christmas tells us what the reason cannot be. It can't be that you don't love us. You wouldn't have come down here if that was true. You wouldn't have experienced everything that you've experienced for us unless you love us. This Christmas, God, would you help us to open our eyes to how much you care for us, how much you love us. Would you help us open our eyes to the meaning of Christmas, that we might step out of the fear that so easily grips our hearts and into the joy and the peace that you desire every one of your children to live in for your glory and our joy. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.